Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Robots Radio presents... In 1954, director Alfred Hitchcock and star Jimmy Stewart gave the world a thrilling romp through the lens of a wheelchair-bound photographer. In 2019, we go back to bourbon as we wrap up season one. The film is Rear Window. The whiskey is Four Roses Small Batch. And we'll review them both. This is... The The Film Film and Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1954 film Rear Window. Brad, this is the last episode for season one of the Film and Whiskey Podcast. I think it's funny that you say that because it really hasn't been until the last few weeks that we've actually said like, hey, this has been a season. Yeah, yeah, I think no one really knew, but we're telling them now. This is the season finale. <laughs> okay, this is this uh, film and whiskey nation. This is the season one finale. This is like if we were watching Grey's Anatomy, at least three people would die during the course of this podcast episode. Ooh, who can we kill? Oh man, I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of who can we kill, the topic for today's movie. Yeah, for we're, real. We are looking at Alfred Hitchcock's 1954 classic Rear Window and. Honestly, I don't think we could have picked a better movie to end, quote unquote, end our season on because it's just fun. It's just such a fun movie to watch. And Brad, I mean, I know you and I will get into a little bit of an analysis on the movie, but it's not the kind of movie where it's like vertigo, where there's layers and layers of subtext. I think this is just a super suspenseful, super thrilling movie, and it's just a fun watch from beginning to end. Yeah, I I got into this movie and, you know. Fun fact, I had never seen this movie before. Oh, nice. And so I got into this movie and I kept expecting the classic Hitchcock fear-inducing suspense. And I never got it. And I was actually, this might sound bad, I was actually really refreshed by the fact that that wasn't there. Like this really was just kind of a fun romp of a movie that was just done in one room. It it was just Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly and their nurse massage therapist, Stella. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they're just hanging out trying to catch a murder. And it was really, really fun. That's Yeah. And the funny thing is, you know, we usually go into our segment, Brad Explains, but that's pretty much the whole movie. I mean, if you want to elaborate a little bit on it, Brad, I think you can. But essentially, the plot of the movie is we're we're just in one room and there's only a few characters. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy Stewart is a is a world-class photographer, and he was injured shooting some sort of, I think it was a car race. Yeah, something like he that. he got injured. And so he's been, you know, laid up at home with a broken leg for six weeks, and he has one week left till he gets the cast off. And they kind of established very early on that he's just been people watching 
But then he sees this dude start acting really weird in the middle of the night. He keeps leaving with the, you know, a suitcase and coming back and leaving and coming back. And then he sees him like cleaning like a saw and a knife and all this stuff. And uh, he's pretty positive that this dude killed his wife. Yeah, and that's the setup for the movie. Yeah. I guess the first thing you really find out about this movie, you know, the the opening credits have this really cool device where you're basically looking out Jimmy Stewart's rear window because he lives in an apartment complex and all of the surrounding buildings kind of form a courtyard. And so the back window of Stewart's apartment looks out on basically like three other buildings that are kind of making a, a rectangle. And I love that once the credits end, the camera like pushes through Jimmy Stewart's window and kind of takes us on this long tour or like vista of what he sees. And it starts to introduce us to all the characters that we're going to continually see throughout the movie that Jimmy Stewart just watches from his window. And it's a really cool setup to the movie, I think, because it happens basically wordlessly. There's no one introducing you to the characters, but you start to get a sense of the geography of the space and of the personalities of all of Jimmy Stewart's neighbors just in that one long shot. Yeah, anytime I watch movies like this, it really feels like a play being done on the stage. You know, because you have one set, one stage, and the camera really spends time letting you get to know the geography of this little shared backyard space, you know, in the middle of a big city. And I, I really enjoyed that Hitchcock was willing to spend time not just with you know, one or two of his backyard neighbors. He really he really just kind of takes you on a meandering tour over this week of what's going on in the lives of all these different people. And there's payoff at the very end of the movie when, you know, you, you kind of see things come together for the better. Yeah, definitely. And I, I don't want to go too much farther without talking about the cinematography in this movie, the camera work, because you don't quite notice it because, like Brad said, the movie really takes place from inside one room and they never leave that room. And so it seems like a very simplistic setup for the movie. But it reminded me a lot of our 12 Angry Men episode where we talked about how there were so many different camera setups within that one room that you almost never see things from the same perspective. And the the different camera tricks that are employed in this movie are just so cool. The camera is constantly moving. You're switching between lenses. Like when Jimmy Stewart pulls out his you know photographer's camera with the giant lens on the end, the camera switches to having this sort of circular lens and you're looking through Jimmy Stewart's camera. And it just helps create this sense of suspense and dread. And the camera is so important in that. Yeah, honestly, what you were saying, it almost reminds me of like long running TV shows like The Office, where you're set in one specific space the entire time and you end up seeing The Office from the exact same camera angles over and over and over. And it, it almost makes it like an oddity and a rarity when you see the office space like from a different angle. Right. And and with this movie, you didn't have to worry about that. You got to see, you know, Jimmy Stewart's apartment from all different angles, but you got to see the backyard just from the angle of his window. And it really helps create a good contrast as you're watching the movie. You You always know where you are. And I love that about it. So Alfred Hitchcock actually had this set built like it was basically like they built the facade of three or four functioning buildings. But then 
you know, they they really did build the interior of the building across the way. And it's just really cool to me to think about the fact that they're on this giant stage, basically filming this movie. And I noticed one thing that Hitchcock does with the camera, and I thought it was really, really interesting. Way back at the beginning of this season, Brad, we talked about An American in Paris and how Vincent Minnelli liked to do this trick where he put a frame within a frame. So like he would pan over and show a mirror and you would see the frame of the mirror within the frame of the Mm -hmm. camera shot. Hitchcock does that here. Like you never actually get a shot that's inside the apartment across the way. You always see what's in the apartment through the window of the apartment. And so it shrinks like the the field of view down significantly because you're looking at everything from a distance. And I think Hitchcock's doing all of that on purpose because it it reminds the audience like from minute one that you are a spectator, like you're joining Jimmy Stewart in basically peeping on all of these people across the way. And it's such a really cool shot because or uh, it's such a really cool device Because people like walk in and out of rooms in the apartments across the way and they disappear behind walls because we can't see them anymore. And it's a constant reminder that we're not intimately involved in those people's lives. We're all watching them from a distance. Yeah. And I but I really loved one specific point when Grace Kelly has broken into, you know, the murderer's apartment. And he and the the murderer comes back into the apartment and he finds things kind of messed up in the apartment. And you see Grace Kelly for half a second in the reflection of the window as she kind of like falls away from him. And it's just it's such a cool way, like you were saying, to have a a frame within a frame where you're seeing something that you shouldn't necessarily be seeing. I, I thought that was so well done. All right. So, Brad, why don't we talk a little bit about the performances in this movie? Because it's a movie that really is anchored down by just a few speaking roles. I mean, we see a lot of these neighbors across the way, and I think the neighbors actually do a really good job of playing their roles as well. But when it comes to people who are actually like given names and lines of dialogue in the movie, there's really just Jimmy Stewart. There's Grace Kelly. There's Thelma Ritter as uh, their nurse. And there's uh, Jimmy Stewart's friend Doyle, who plays a detective. And that's pretty much it. Yeah, honestly, I... I was almost blown away when Grace Kelly walked in and I shouldn't have been because the way that Thelma Ritter and James Stewart describe her, you know, when they're having that conversation and and Jimmy Stewart's talking about like, like, oh man, she's like too perfect for me, too far beyond that anything that you could have ever heard. Like the way he describes her could have been like a magazine describing how perfect Grace Kelly is. Yeah. I guess I'm not the girl I thought I was. Now, there's nothing wrong with you, Lazy. You've got this town on the palm of your hand. Not quite, it seems. Goodbye, Jeff. Well, you mean good night. I mean what I said. Well, well Lazy, couldn't we just, uh, couldn't we just keep things status quo? Without any future? Well, when am I going to see you again? Not for a long time. At least not until tomorrow night. But for some reason, when she came in, I was like, oh, Grace Kelly's in this movie. That's awesome. Yeah. And every time I watch this movie, I'm reminded of how good of an actress she is. I feel like, you know, her life story being what it is and her becoming a real life princess 
has so overshadowed the fact that she actually was a really good actress. She won an Oscar, not for this movie, but she won a Best Actress Oscar. And I think it shows. And what I love about her character in this movie is that they set her up as this perfect, high fashion, you know, haute couture kind of girl. And the whole movie she spends trying to convince us and Jimmy Stewart that that's not who she is and that she's, you know, ready to climb up ladders and dig through people's gardens looking for clues to solve a murder. And it's it's really, really cool to think about the fact that she's fighting against this persona that she's too perfect. But then in real life, she still goes off and becomes a princess anyway. Right. Yeah. And I I think the reason that it works so well in the movie, at, at the very least, is because at the very start of the movie, you really do see her as this princess perfection sort of picture. You know, she's ordering in dinner from the fanciest restaurant in town and she's wearing these beautiful, you know, this beautiful skirt that's puffed out, you know, wide. And as the movie progresses, she kind of wears more functional clothing and she the giddiness that she shows at trying to catch this murderer and like join in Jimmy Stewart's plan is just it's infectious, it's fun, it's refreshing. There there's something about her por- performance that man, I just I just can't get enough of it. It's so fresh. Well, and the counter to her and our, you know, our protagonist for the movie is Jimmy Stewart. And I want to talk a little bit about Jimmy Stewart in this movie. This is our second film that features James Stewart and it's a completely different character from Vertigo. And I think so many people have this idea, just like they do with Bogart, of who Jimmy Stewart is. And I think, you know, the closest the closest thing we have to a Jimmy Stewart today is Tom Hanks in that, you know, when you watch a movie like you're watching Tom Hanks and you're kind of always aware that it's Tom Hanks. But Tom Hanks and Jimmy Stewart both, I think, sometimes don't get enough credit for how well they do disappear into their roles. Stewart's character in this movie is kind of a jerk. Like, for most of the movie, he's really, really, really mean to Grace Kelly's character, and he's constantly trying to push her away and trying to convince himself that he doesn't want her because she's too perfect. And what I love about what Stewart is doing here is he's unlikable at parts, but he's unlikable in a completely different way than he is in Vertigo. Well, and the thing for me is I get that he's unlikable, especially at the start when he's when he's telling Grace Kelly to just shut up. That was probably the only part of the movie that I was like, wow, that does not come across well in 2019. But the the thing for me is the more I thought about it, the more I was like, man, this dude's been holed up in his house for six weeks at this point. I kind of understand why he's, you know, plays like a grumpy old man for a lot of the movie. I I get it. Like he's been holed up in his house for six weeks. That would be absolutely terrible. Yeah. And I think that that's probably a, a better word. Brad is grumpy. He, he really does come across as just like a grouch and he does say some really mean and hurtful things to Grace Kelly. But at the end of the day, he still has to be likable enough for us to spend 99% of this movie in a room with him. You know, he is the person that we're looking through his eyes across the way and trying to solve this murder case. And so to some extent, you have to be able to relate with them. And like I said, I think that Jimmy Stewart is able to find that balance and play it just perfectly. Yeah. And I found myself relating to him for for the the fact that he had to be so aggravated of like, I see this murder happening and, and my girlfriend is telling me that it's not real. It couldn't have happened. The, my friend who I fought in the war with, who's a detective now, is telling me, no, 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 it couldn't have happened. Like, you're ridiculous. And so, like, I kind of understand his frustration and grumpiness 
for the fact that like he's like, no, I know what I know. I've seen what I've seen. And I know something, you know, bad is happening in that apartment. Absolutely. All right. So why don't we kind of spiral down a little bit here and talk about the smaller parts in the movie? So the two leads, obviously, are Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. And then you've got this sort of second rung of supporting characters where I would put Thelma Ritter. I would put the guy that played his friend Doyle and I would put Raymond Burr, who plays the murderer. And let's talk about them for a minute. Brad, who would you like to start with? I'd love to start with Thelma. I I think she had hands down one of the best quotes in the movie. Oh, let's hear it. At the very start, when she's talking to Jimmy Stewart about, you know, why is he not marrying Grace Kelly and like, like, get your act together. And he and he says something to the effect of like, well, it's a matter of intelligence. And she goes, nothing has caused the human race more problems than intelligence. (laughs) She gets all of the good lines in the script. Like she gets all the one liners. And, you know, I don't know if we're going to have time to get to the script or not, but. I was impressed at how clever the script was. It wasn't just exposition. It wasn't just setting a plot. They took breaks for people to get zingers in every now and then. And Thelma Ritter, I wrote down a couple of hers because she plays this sort of brash character who plays what everyone's thinking or says what everyone's thinking. There's this one great moment where they're all looking across the way into Thorwald, the suspected murderer's apartment, and he's scrubbing down the walls. And Grace Kelly's kind of asking, you know, what's he doing over there? And Jimmy Stewart says, oh, he's cleaning the bathroom walls. And Thelma Ritter just goes, mm, must have splattered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and she gets these gross, gory lines that just undercut all of the tension and they provide some much needed humor. And I really loved everything she did in this movie. Yeah, the the thing I really loved about this script is that I think it could have gone the traditional Hitchcock route and become a very dark, suspenseful thriller. But instead, with the way this script was written, it remained light and airy and and just kind of like fun and playful. And I, like I said at the start of this episode, I really appreciated that. There was something just refreshing about this movie that that you don't always get with other Hitchcock films because, let's be really honest, they're, they can be pretty dark and and you leave at the end and you're like, Man, what is like what is wrong with the human soul and the human condition? Well, I think that you do have some of that here to some extent. I think Hitchcock is still toying with the audience. And, you know, we'll get into this in our analysis a little bit. But I think he is trying to get us to think about some of these things and these these bigger picture things. But there's definitely an undercurrent of darkness here. You know, even though they're joking about it in a sort of gallows way or a morbid way, I was kind of shocked at how this movie is like 60, what, 65 years old now. And they're talking about dismemberment, like just so flippantly. It it was really interesting to me because I didn't think you would be able to get away with talking about hacking up someone with a saw and, you know, disposing of limbs and what's in the what's in the hat box and things like that. I was really taken aback by that. Yeah. Part of me honestly wonders if the generation who had seen World War II, you know, a decade in the past, they're getting to the age where they're starting to control movie making and and what's a lot and what's not. And I'm just really curious if they had been so desensitized to things like that, that they were like, yeah, I, I mean, I saw worse things than this in the war. They're just talking about it here. Yeah. And Hitchcock obviously had a part in sort of tearing down bit by bit those little bits of censorship. You know, one of these days we'll get around to watching Psycho. but. You know, not only did he 
skirt the censors with the way he filmed some of the murders in the movie Psycho. But there's actually a, a shot in the movie where a character flushes something down a toilet. And it was the first time a toilet had ever been shown in American cinema since they like implemented the censors in the 1930s. Wait, what? Yeah, they would not allow them to show a toilet. And so Hitchcock, bit by bit, was undermining the censors and sneaking things in and getting things around them in a way that led kind of to the demolition of the censors in the late 60s. I mean, even like on American television in the 1950s, when they showed married couples, they never showed them in the same bed. They always had two separate like twin beds that would be separated by like an end table. And they would not show people in the same bed for fear of, you know, inciting people and offending people. So the censors did a lot of really interesting, weird things. Yeah, no, that's it's really interesting. I I do love the way that that Hitchcock is always pushing boundaries, but he does it in such a casual way. Like there's something about the way Hitchcock films a movie that he always takes his time to get places. He He's never in a rush. He's never in a hurry. I, and I honestly, I don't know if Hitchcock could have made movies in today's, you know, modern era because they're just so much faster paced than his movies. And it's it's really fun to go back and watch these movies because you're not forced along at a breakneck pace. You know, the these movies really move slowly and, and that's okay. Well, and that goes back to that example that we've given with Tarantino now of stretching the rubber band. You know, when when you're in a scene that's supposed to be drawing out suspense and Hitchcock just magnifies that and blows it up to the whole movie. I mean, at about the half hour mark, I kind of looked at my watch a little bit, you know, metaphorically speaking, and said like, all right, I'm kind of ready for this thing to get moving here because he really does take his time to establish the geography, the characters, their relationships to each other so that when it's time for the suspense to start, you're in, you're invested because you've spent so much time with these people. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was in that first 30 minutes because I knew I knew the plot of the movie that, you know, he's creeping out his back window and witnesses a murder. And I legit thought that the lady, the lady who lives on the floor level, she was sitting out on her back thing and she had a newspaper over her face. I was like, oh, that's it. She's the, she's the dead one. <laughs> well, let me let me touch on her for a second. And I think this is a good spot to kind of move into talking about Jimmy Stewart's neighbors. Because Hitchcock does a great job. You don't know any of their names except for the nicknames that Jimmy Stewart gives them. Across the way, there's this young, attractive dancer that he calls Miss Torso. (laughs) Next to them is an old couple who sleeps out on their fire escape and has a little nosy dog. On the second floor is Thorwald, the guy that he suspects of being a murderer. And on the bottom floor of that building is this woman that he calls Miss Lonely Hearts. And I think in a lesser director's hands... Miss Lonely Hearts is either too cliched and too on the nose or it's cut altogether. And one of the things I really love about this movie is the subplot of Miss Lonely Heart because Jimmy Stewart is watching this woman who desperately, desperately wants to be in a relationship to the point where she's setting a table for two and pretending to have a conversation over dinner with someone who's not there. And and to the point of, you know, going out to a bar and trying to pick a guy up that's clearly not right for her. And watching her sort of personal tragedy, and then at the end of the movie, her redemption, I, I actually thought that it was a very emotional experience. And I thought Hitchcock handled that so delicately that it, it didn't beat you over the head with what it was trying to do. And it really added a lot to the movie, I thought. Yeah, I think the thing it really added was the fact that 
it there was a lot of things going on. I, I I think the beautiful thing about that story and even the story of the dancer when you know her boyfriend comes back from the army <laughs> who's shorter than her. I, there's something about seeing those stories that reminds you that that we're not here just to watch one man murder his wife. That life goes on even in the midst of people doing terrible things. Uh, there was just such a reminder of like this is a normal you know, everyday New York back apartment complex area that those stories really highlighted that. Yeah, and I think this movie, you know, at the end of the day, it really says a lot about what it means to be part of a community, even if your community is these cramped together apartments. And Hitchcock, what he does is he shows the good and the bad, the dark and the light of being a neighbor. Because Jimmy Stewart is indulging in some really kind of creepy behavior when you think about it. He's spying on people. And Hitchcock, I think, wants us to feel that a little bit. That, yeah, it's fun to watch other people, but we know we're doing something wrong. And there's always that tension there. But at the end of the day, if it hadn't been for Jimmy Stewart spying, then they may never have been able to solve what ended up being a murder. And they would have never ended up, you know, kind of watching Miss Lonely Hearts fall in love with the guy that lives in the building across the way from her. And I think it's a really cool picture of how there's good and there's bad. And we might indulge ourselves in the bad once in a while. But at the end of the day, we have kind of a responsibility to each other. And this movie really does kind of end up being about what it means to be a good neighbor. Yeah. And you see that a little bit in the old couple that lives in the top floor when her dog gets murdered yeah. and she kind of gives this speech about like, what kind of neighbors are you that that you would not watch and like, like stop this or do something about it? Which one of you did it? Which one of you killed my dog? Oh, you don't know the meaning of the word neighbor. Neighbors like each other, speak to each other, care if anybody lives or dies, but none of you do. <laughs> but I couldn't imagine any of you being so low that you'd kill a little helpless, friendly dog. And and she kind of gives this insight into the neighbors don't actually care about each other, but they all are up in each other's business all the time. Right. It's a, it's a weird thing. No, and that's that's I think that's a key scene. And then there's one other really key line that gets at this, and it's a thing Thelma Ritter says again. Everyone in the apartment complex is minding their own business, even though they're all also kind of constantly like spying on each other. And I think what Hitchcock is trying to do is show that hypocrisy of what does it mean to like follow social norms and be polite and things like that. And Thelma Ritter is talking to Grace Kelly about murder. And she has this great line where she says, nobody's ever invented a polite word for a killing yet. Right. And at the end of the day, like, that's kind of what this movie is about, is about tearing down that status quo of what what do we say it means to be a good neighbor? And then what does it actually mean to examine ourselves and the kind of gross, like, icky behavior of spying on people, but then also to actually invest time and energy into other people's lives? Can I just say another great line that Thelma Ritter has? Oh, please. <laughs> she, she goes, your hormones must have gone bad. Jimmy Sir goes, oh, well, why is that? And she goes, because you've been watching these bathing sun beauties all month and your temperature hasn't gone up a bit. <laughs> <laughs> There's so many sex jokes in this movie and they're all hilarious. But again, I'm like, oh, Hitchcock, man, he's, yeah. he's really sneaking them in there. Yeah. And it was 1954. And I'm just like, how did he pull this off in the 50s? 
Well, Brad, I'm sure there's a lot more that we have to say about this movie, but why don't we take a break at this point and try our last whiskey for season one, which is Four Roses Small Batch. You better have picked a good one, because this is the end of the season, Bob. We need to end on a high note. All right, so this week we will be looking at Four Roses Small Batch. Bob, what can you tell me about this whiskey? So the first thing I'll tell you about the whiskey is that it is one of the four samples that our friend Bourbon in College sent to us. So if you are ever interacting with us on Instagram, one of our best Instagram friends is at Bourbon in College. He decided to send us four different samples of Four Roses. Now, we've tried the standard Four Roses, and this is kind of the next one up in their line. You know, they take it from, as the name says, a smaller batch of barrels. Uh, and so it's it's a little bit more, I don't know what the word would be, like craft Privileged. or artisanal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's only a few dollars more, and people swear by it. They say that it's like significantly better than the regular Four Roses. So I'm kind of excited to try it. Brad, what are you picking up on the nose here? So this is going to sound bad but i feel like it kind of smells like lemon pledge oh interesting like it really has it's not orange or lime or like those other citruses it genuinely smells like a lemon to me yeah see i'm not getting a lot of citrus on this and i'll also come out and say and this is going to sound bad that i'm not picking up a lot of that like characteristic bourbon sweetness there's not any vanilla or brown sugar i am getting a ton of smoke and it's very different than the five scotchy smokes we've been smelling for the last month and a half or whatever <laughs> it's been. But it has that good bourbon smoke to it, a lot like the Elijah Craig that we drank a few weeks back. But then there's like this undertone of an even more burnt char. Like it's not just the like the regular amount of toasty char you get. It smells like like a, a bonfire to me a little bit. Yeah, no, I totally get that. I it it's a it's just it's a strange smelling bourbon. I, I don't know what to really expect from the rest of this. Now, Four Roses has quite a few recipes that they kind of blend together to make things more consistent. And people who are really, really into Four Roses, they'll tell you like what their favorite one of their 16 or whatever it is recipes is. But Four Roses is definitely a divisive bourbon. Some people swear by it and some people don't like any of them. So I wouldn't be surprised if you and I come out you know, in different spots on this because it is such a divisive bourbon. I will say that I'm going to give this one a seven on the nose. Brad, what would you say for the nose? <laughs> I'm going to give it a four and a half on the nose. Four and a half. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. I, and I, I don't think this is a great nose because it lacks a lot of those bourbon characteristics, but I'm intrigued. Why don't we take a sip? All right. So first thing I'll say is that it is not very sweet. You guys know I love my sweet bourbons. There's not a lot of sweetness on this at all. And I actually picked up literally nothing on the front of my palate. Like on the tip of my tongue, no real burn, no sweetness. It's just it's just kind of there. And then as I kick it to the back of my mouth, there's lots of spice on the back. There's the alcohol burn. There's the char. But as an overall sort of taste experience, it's definitely not sweet at all. I keep coming back to the idea of a campfire. I think this is the kind of thing that it it reminds me of a bonfire. And I think that it's the kind of thing that I could see myself drinking around a bonfire. Yeah, I don't really know what just happened on my tongue. Was it a, did it punch you in the tongue, Brad? No, it didn't really punch me. What's the proof on this? All right. So yeah, this one's, this one's 90 proof. Yeah. So I know for a fact that I got this out of a clean glass, 
but honestly, this kind of tastes like dusty. Oh, interesting. And and not and I I really don't know what's happening here. I I'm not enjo- I'm not enjoying this very much. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I'm gonna give it a five and a half on taste. Brad, what would you say? I'm gonna give it a three. Wow. I don't know what I'm supposed to be tasting, but I'm not enjoying it. Drinking scotches has ruined bourbon for you, hasn't it? Dude, I'm not going to lie. I've really enjoyed scotches this last month. I have too. I was hoping for a really good sweet whiskey to end this season with, but we are not getting it here. Yeah. And so I guess that takes us into the finish. I will say I don't like the taste, but I do like the finish. And that's that's kind of weird, but it, this is like a grown man's bourbon. It kind of reminds me of like a peated scotch. It's almost like something you have to chew on a little bit. There's tons of smoke, tons of char when I swallow this. It definitely gives you the Kentucky hug on the way down. So it's a challenging finish, and I like that. I just wish that there had been a better taste that led up to it. But in terms of the finish, I liked it. I'm going to give it a seven on finish. Man, we are going to come out to vastly different places on this, Bob. Honestly, I didn't get the taste of Lemon Pledge on the front end, but on the back end, I'm reintroduced to that taste of lemon ethanol kind of cleaning solution. Yeah. I'm going to give it a three on the finish. Brad, I will say that I respect your dedication to this podcast, that you have actually gone out and drank lemon pledge. Just yeah. so you know what the tasting note is. Yeah, I, I've really been working. That's dedication, man. I've really been working on expanding <laughs> my palate. Yeah, well, you definitely did. Maybe that's why you can't taste anything anymore. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So overall balance, you know, in a sense, this is a really well-balanced whiskey because there was no sweetness on the nose. There was no sweetness on the taste. It was really smoky on the nose and it was really smoky on the finish. So I think it's pretty well-balanced. It's just not my cup of tea, if I'm being honest with you. I guess I'll give it a seven on the balance. It didn't really surprise me at all. It was consistent to what I thought it would be. Yeah, I'll go ahead and give it a six on balance, but I mean, it tasted like lemon pledge most of the way through, so. All right, and overall value, the MSRP on this is $30, which isn't bad, especially because regular Four Roses, I think, was like in the $22 to $24 range, so this would make sense as kind of the next step up. It's not a huge investment more, but for $30, I don't really know, man. It's If, if this is the kind of thing you like, if you like a bourbon that's not as sweet and is kind of heavily spiced then this might be up your alley. But I think I would always steer people to get Weller Antique for the same price or to get Elijah Craig even for the same price. And Brad, I know you weren't crazy about Elijah Craig, but I think I would choose Elijah Craig over this any day of the week. Yeah, I think my struggle with this is that it's not very good and it's $30. (laughs) (laughs) And like if this was a $12 bottle of whiskey, I'd probably give it like a seven or an eight. Um, but since it is a 30, 30-ish dollar bottle of whiskey, I'm going to give it a two on value. All right. So here's my struggle. And I want to hear your thoughts, Brad, okay. like, in all seriousness. I don't like it, right? Yeah. But I also don't know that it's a poorly made whiskey. Like we've had enough actually bad bottom shelf whiskeys to know what a whiskey that was given no care tastes like. Yeah. And I don't think that's the case here. I just don't like it. And so that's kind of where why I said, you know, if this is your cup of tea, then it's a really great value because it's just a different kind of bourbon. It just also happens to be the kind of bourbon that I don't like. So I think I'm going to give it a six and a half on value. 
I can think of four or five other things I would rather buy at this price point. But I also don't think that I would say this is a poorly made bourbon. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can taste poor quality when it comes to any any alcohol, but especially whiskey. But I still look at this and I go, even though it wasn't a poorly made whiskey, it doesn't mean it was a, you know, a well-made whiskey. And honestly, I think they're missing on a lot of key notes that you need when you are making a bourbon. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, we we have two Four Roses samples left in this lineup that Bourbon and College sent us. So we still have the single barrel and then we have what's called the small batch select, which is their newest and kind of most high end bottle. We also had a single barrel selection in our blind taste test episode that was at Barrel Proof. And that thing was a beast. And I got to say, like drinking this kind of reminds me of that. But it's like all of the things that blew us away have been toned down. That one was so spicy and so alcoholic that we kind of loved it, even though we didn't know what was happening. And this one, it just has hints of that. But it's unpleasant as a result, I think. Yeah, that one I was blown away by. That was one of the most complex bourbons I've ever had. And it was phenomenal. Four Roses knocked it out of the park. This one is underwhelming and frustrating. Like, I, like I want it to do more than what it's doing. Yeah, for sure. So in, in light of what we've said, though, Brad, do you want to still stay at a two on value? Yes. Okay. So that brings me out to a 33 out of 50, and it brings Brad out to, if my math is correct, an 18 and a half out of 50. 18.5. Which brings us out to an average of a 25.75 or a 51 and a half. This is one of the lowest rated ones we've had in a while. Yeah, and I know that my score is bringing that down, but I don't feel bad because I'm right. I mean, look, my my score was only a 66. Like, it's not like I love this thing. Oh, for sure. I don't think it's great. And I'm kind of disappointed in it because I thought that it would be a big step up in quality and in flavor from the standard Four Roses, which I also didn't love. But I think I'd probably take the regular yellow label over this. Would you? Oh, for sure. And I, I also don't want this to take away from the beautiful quality and flavor that is bourbon in college. I mean, uh, oh. the dude, the dude is sending us free whiskey and I like I'm so thankful. I, I don't want this in any way to reflect on how wonderful he is. No, not at all. So thank you once again, Bourbon and College. I, very, very appreciative. But I didn't like it very much. Yeah, it's, it's just it's just not for me. So, I, you know, I think it goes without saying Brad is not recommending this. I'm not recommending this either. I think that there are tons more whiskeys and bourbons, especially that I would recommend if you've got $30 to kill. So, yeah, that's it is what it is, man. You know what I can recommend, though, Bob? What's that? Thelma Ritter making sex jokes in Rear Window. (laughs) Well, let's get back into that, Brad. Sounds good. All right. So that was Four Roses Small Batch. Neither Brad nor I recommend, but we both do recommend this movie. And Brad, I want to talk just for a second about the music in the movie, because there's a lot of music over the opening credits, and they make a big to-do about presenting, you know, who did the score for the movie. But then after that opening music, all of the music in the movie is actually happening within the world of the movie. And there's a word for that. It's called diegetic music, meaning like... You know, in a musical, the characters don't actually know that they're singing. They're just expressing their feeling and we hear it as song. 
But when diegetic music happens, it's like a character puts on a record and everyone in the world of the movie knows that the record's on. And I thought it was such an interesting and modern touch that Hitchcock scored so much of this movie to like radio hits. You know, you hear Bing Crosby like singing a song and Hitchcock scores a whole scene to that. And of course, there are a couple things where like a character is playing a record and it's classical music, but there's no score that happens over the movie. Everything, all the music you hear is happening in someone's apartment and Jim it's just kind of filtering over to where Jimmy Stewart is sitting. Yeah, I was really fascinated with the way that they used music in this movie and the fact that they keep you reminded of the normalcy of life with music and, you know, the sounds of the city. All the while, Jim, you know, Jimmy Stewart is watching a man trying to get away with murder. It, it was a really good dichotomy that I thought worked perfectly for the movie. I mean, even in the final scene, the confrontation where Raymond Burr looks across the way and realizes Jimmy Stewart's been spying on him and comes up into his apartment, it's dead silent, right? But you still hear the sounds of the city in the background. It, Hitchcock doesn't drain those things out. We've just become so accustomed to hearing that soft lull of the city. And I think that the sound design in this movie is fantastic because you hear the creaking of, of Jimmy Stewart's chair and you hear the turning of the doorknobs over all this background noise. And it just becomes this really, really beautiful mix of like happy music in the background. But what we're seeing is a guy trying to throw Jimmy Stewart out the window. It's just it's such a cool mashup, I thought. Yeah, it it really is amazing how well the music worked in this movie. And it shouldn't surprise me because Hitchcock really is a master of using music and noise to kind of enhance and and focus you in on what's happening on the screen. So it's no surprise that he that he knocks it out of the park in this movie. When we talked about Vertigo, we talked about Hitchcock as a filmmaker and the Hitchcock you get with North by Northwest is different than the Hitchcock you get with Vertigo, is different than the Hitchcock you get here. But I don't know if there's a movie in Hitchcock's catalog where it's just so purely based on Hitchcock's instincts for suspense. Like, this is just pure suspense diluted down into a movie. And I think this is one of those movies where you are kind of under the spell or the control of Hitchcock from minute one. He knows exactly what he's doing. Every camera angle, every shot, every cut, every beat is just this masterful piece of movie making. Yeah, I think one of the best parts of Hitchcock's direction for this movie is the pacing of the movie. You know, you really get this sense of days passing, of Jimmy Stewart kind of growing more and more anxious about what's happening. Uh, he becomes more and more tense until somebody finally believes him. Like, the the way he paces the movie from, from scene to scene, from moment to moment, you, you really move through a, lo a lot of stuff happening at just the right pace that it doesn't overwhelm you that you you see each thing that's happening and 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 you're not overwhelmed by all the stuff that's going on by all the different neighbors and what they're doing you know he just paces the movie in a really beautiful way go on you're curious come on you wonder if it's your girlfriend calling the one you killed for go on pick it up Did you get my note? Well, did you get it, Thorwell? Who are you? I'll give you a chance to find out. 
Meet me in the bar at the Albert Hotel. Do it right away. Why should I? Little business meeting to settle the estate of your late wife. And I love, though, that there is still this level of like subtext. Like there is still something for us to analyze in this movie. And we kind of touched a little bit on this when we did Vertigo. But Hitchcock is kind of known, especially nowadays, that he was kind of just an old perv. He really, really had an obsession with blonde women. And that's why you always see a blonde woman as like the leads of his movies, because just like Jimmy Stewart in Vertigo, he was kind of trying to craft this immaculate image of the, you know, the female form. And in his mind, it was it was the blonde woman. And so when people watch this movie and they're trying to, like, get a glimpse of Hitchcock's you know psyche, there's a lot of psychoanalysis and stuff that goes on with this movie. But basically, a lot of people see this movie as evidence of Hitchcock's kind of weird pervertedness. But what I love is what Hitchcock's doing with the movie, which is to kind of say that the audience, we're all pervs, too. <laughs> like, in a way, this is a movie about spying on people. This is a movie about voyeurism. And Jimmy Stewart even asks it at one point. He says, do you think it's ethical to be doing what we're doing, even if we are stopping a murder? Is it right? Is it ethical for us to be looking out of our windows and into the lives of other people? And we're doing something as the audience that we're not supposed to do. And Brad, you even mentioned that it's fun. Like, it's fun to spy on these people and to solve a murder. And yet at the same time, I think in the back of all of our minds and the way Hitchcock frames all those shots is to say, yeah, it might be fun, but you're also not supposed to be doing this. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, just the use of the word pervy to describe Hitchcock, that... I guess I don't know tons about his personal life, but like, was the dude a real creep or something? I think that he probably would be perceived that way a lot more today than he was back then. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> if I'm being honest, I think that he probably did have a little bit of a weird obsession with certain types of women. Okay. I Yeah, that that's just interesting to me. Was he like married? Was he... Yeah, he was married. And his wife, uh, I think her name was Alma. She actually was basically like a co-director for him on a number of his movies. They worked together all the way from the silent era. And she served as his editor in some movies. But it was just kind of a known fact that they had a really good working relationship. And, you know, their marriage was unconventional. Yeah, things we probably don't need to delve into, but that's just curious. Yeah, for sure. But I, I mean, I do think that people are kind of looking in the wrong place when they're analyzing this movie. They're looking for clues about Hitchcock. But what Hitchcock's doing is actually, I think, trying to say something about ourselves. Right. Which is, why is it why is it enjoyable that we like spying on people? What's the implication of that? Right. Yeah. What does it say about you as a person that you're enjoying not just solving a murder, but just creeping on a newlywed couple as, you know, they walk into their house for the first time? And the great Roger Ebert, you know, Ebert is the most famous movie critic in history. And I think rightly so, because he could say he could say things in a way that none of the, the rest of us could. And he talked about how Hitchcock is such a master director in this movie, but he also gets into how he implicates the audience. And Ebert wrote, Hitchcock traps us right from the first. And because Hitchcock makes us accomplices in Jimmy Stewart's voyeurism, we're along for the ride. When an enraged man comes bursting through the door to kill Stuart, we can't detach ourselves because we looked too. And so we share the guilt. And in a way, we deserve what's coming to him. 
And I think that's such a really interesting way to think about the movie because I do think that's what's happening there. But you don't realize it when you're watching the movie because just like Jimmy Stewart, you're caught up in the fun of spying on people. But with that comes sort of, you know, the responsibility of what does it mean to help people as a result of that? I think Uncle Ben said something about, you know, with great voyeurism comes great responsibility. (laughs) I think so, too. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what he said to Peter. I did find one other really good quote that talked about, like, the voyeurism aspects of the movie. And I I think this is my last point that I'll make, and I want to hear your thoughts, Brad. Uh, It was an author named John Faywell, and he said that Hitchcock, quote, recognized that the darkest aspect of voyeurism is our desire for awful things to happen to people, to make ourselves feel better, and to relieve ourselves of the burden of examining our own lives. And actually... Now that I think about it, I think that is part of the point of the movie, because Jimmy Stewart's character is a guy who is he's a good guy, but he clearly has some flaws that he needs to work through. He needs to work through his trust issues with his girlfriend and his inability to do that comes out in spying on other people. And at the end of the movie, he finally is able to kind of take a look at his own life to step outside and look back in on himself. And I think it's a really, really great moral or lesson in a movie where I wasn't really expecting a moral or a lesson. Yeah, I guess I struggle with that take a little bit. I I don't necessarily think that all humans just want to look in on other people's lives and see the worst in them. But maybe I'm viewing it from a from too positive of an angle. I don't know. I, I wouldn't have watched this movie and thought to myself, man, Jimmy Stewart is enjoying watching other people's lives suck. Yeah, I think that it's it's. I do think it's there. I do think it's really subtle, though, at the same time. And Hitchcock, time and time again, he talked about this kind of stuff of spying on people, of, you know, human beings kind of giving into that sinful nature that we have. And I really love, though, that at the end of the movie, he's able to make it redemptive. He's able to say, like, yeah, people can be kind of gross and creepy and stare out their windows into other people's private lives. But there also is that you know, that layer that we talked about earlier of responsibility, of being a good neighbor, of being part of a community and not just putting on airs or, you know, following the social norms of saying hi in the hallway, but actually being involved in other people's lives. And that's that's what makes the movie work for me, I think. Yeah. And I think that the key for me of what you said is that the movie is redemptive. And I I think that's one of the reasons I love this movie so much is that a lot of uh, Hitchcock's other movies they might have a a final story where you know Jimmy Stewart finds out who the killer is and you know so on and so forth but there's they don't feel redemptive you don't finish the movie feeling good about humanity whereas this one like you kind of end the movie and Jimmy Stewart's you know taking a nap in his chair and Grace Kelly is reading a book on the bed and they're just they're just kind of happy and Miss Lonelyheart is falling in love with you know Mr. Piano Player and the Mrs. Torso has her boyfriend come home from the army. Yeah. And it's kind of a lighthearted, fun ending. Yeah, for sure. And I think that gets us into our final scores. Brad, I want to hear what your score would be on this movie. As, as a person who's watched it for the first time, and also, you know, as someone who's seen Vertigo, and I'm pretty sure you gave Vertigo a 10, right? I did give it a 10 out of 10. All right. So what do you think of this one? I don't have any reason to not give it a 10 out of 10. But I'm going to give it a nine and a half out of ten. You know, what's really funny is I completely understand what you mean. And I'm in the exact same spot. For some reason, the slowness of the first half hour got to me a little bit more than it did with Vertigo. 
And especially because we never leave that room, it does become claustrophobic. And I think that was probably intentional on Hitchcock's part. But I wanted the movie to get going a little bit faster. And I think because of that, it's still super effective. It's still a great movie. But I'm also going to give it a nine and a half. Yeah, there is something. And maybe this is just a sign of, you know, the darkness of the human heart. But like there's something about the thriller aspect of Vertigo that just popped that movie up into the epic legendary category. Whereas like this movie was just, it's a phenomenal movie. It's fun and interesting and suspenseful and a bit of a mystery. And and it's it's great. It's phenomenal, but it's not quite perfect and legendary in the way that Vertigo is. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a genre movie, right? Like Vertigo is the kind of movie that is so one of a kind because it's operating on so many levels and so many layers of psychological stuff that you can be thinking of while the movie's going. This is like, hey, I'm the master of suspense. I'm going to make a suspenseful movie. I'm going to show you all how it's done. And it still works. And it still works really well. I still have a knot in my stomach watching this movie because it is super suspenseful. But like you said, Brad, at the end of the day, that's that's kind of all it is. And it's a darn good example of that. And so I'm I'm really happy giving it a nine and a half. But we want to hear what you have to say about it. Do you think we're crazy? Should it be a 10 out of 10? Or did you watch the movie and you were just kind of underwhelmed? Let us know. Bob, where can they find us on social media? On Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find us at Film Whiskey. That's whiskey with an E. Or if you want to give us a phone call, send us a voicemail and we will play it on the air. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that phone number is 216-800-5923. Now, I know we told you that this is the end of the season, and that's true when it comes to our regular episodes, but we do have special bonus episodes. That's right. Episodes plural. We thought what we would do is we would rank all of our movies one to 32. We would have a bracket challenge to determine what is the winner of film and whiskey season one. We're going to be drinking four different kinds of whiskey. It should be a heck of a lot of fun. So please tune in on Thursday for parts one and two of our season one bracket challenge. Guys, thank you so much for listening to Film and Whiskey, for growing it over the course of these 32 episodes. Honestly, we cannot thank you enough. It means so much to us to know that you guys are listening week in and week out. All right, for the Film and Whiskey podcast, I'm Bob Book. I am Brad G. We'll see you next time. Do you enjoy being optimistic about bad movies? Or do you enjoy at least trying to figure out where someone worked really hard on a bad movie? Well, we've got the podcast for you. New to Robots Radio, we represent Fresh Tomatoes, the movie podcast. Each week, we look at two movies that did really badly critically, but we try to find the good in them. And we have segments such as What Could Have Saved It? and Would You Watch It Again? If you're there on a Saturday night, you want to watch a bad movie, but you're not sure if it's like good bad or bad bad, or if you should even bother, give us a listen. You can find us on Robots Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Please come and say hi. We love you already. (laughs) (laughs) Goodbye. Goodbye.